The Critically Human channel explores the human experience around the world and throughout time, with topics that range from the search for beauty to the quest for power, featuring concerts, interviews, lectures, and cutting-edge research projects. Visit uctv.tv slash criticallyhuman. First and foremost, again, I, I, I need to begin with, with reconocimientos, with acknowledgement. And today it's Indigenous Peoples Day, which is every day, but we've set a day aside to commemorate and remember on whose land we are, uh, to acknowledge the sacrifices of First Nations peoples that have allowed us to thrive on this land. Regrettably, we have not taken care of Pachamama, our Mother Earth, and now we are at a critical point in which we need to remember the importance of land and water and air. Our state is reminding us that we need to be more mindful, more appreciative, more respectful. And we also need to remember our ancestors who watch over us. Without them, literally, we would not be here. And I also want to acknowledge the wonderful organizers of this meeting, these incredible women, Lynn and Christina and Dalia and Marisol, who have made sure that I could join you today and who have guided me along the way. And nice to meet you, Mario. Um, best wishes for this wonderful program that you have. One of the favorite courses I have ever taught at Davis was Humanities and Medicine, which I reconstructed uh, and taught for a number of years. And also I wanna thank all of the participants who are here today. And I know that I'm joined by several former students and many of my friends who are here to, to support me. And as a Latina and part of a very large network of Latina, Latino, Chicanx, Chicanx scholars and academics and trabajadoras sociales, social workers and community workers and artists, I am blessed to have them in my company today. And what I would like to do with my presentation is hopefully to promote a virtual dialogue among us and among you in your respective work sites regarding the challenges that COVID-19 has created for our communities, for marginalized groups, and also to identify sources of strength and resilience. And lastly, to promote our self-care and our own resilience. And I will be posing a few questions to us that I hope we can engage with in the chat. And if not, that we can continue these conversations in our workspaces. And I just got a text from my uh, eldest son who said, and a family member too. So thank you, Britt Ortiz, for being here with me. So let's begin by naming the obvious. The racism, sexism, homophobia affect the physical and mental health of all those who experience. But in my work with colegas, including Dr. Enriqueta Valdez Curiel, who is a Mexican physician and professor, and Patricia Andrade Palos, a social psychologist at the Mexican University at the UNAM, we demonstrated that perpetrators also are affected by the injustices that they commit. And I think this is very important because to use the trite statement, we're all in this together. And all of the ways in which we are hurt and we hurt others affect our physical, mental, and spiritual health. But it also affects the well-being of those of us who provide services to persons and groups that are victimized by hate, by discrimination, by ignorance, and fear of the other, 
which unfortunately is quite rampant these days in our country. And I want to situate my talk in terms of social stress theory, which argues that stress is produced not only by personal events, but also by the conditions of living that are related to the social context in which we navigate our lives, but also their intersection, our intersectional identities. This is common sense. We all know this. Our abuelas, our grandmothers used to tell us that how we treated each other and how we were treated could make us ill, how we related to the land. And if we were disrespectful of the land, we would become sick. But sometimes we, we forget these wonderful lessons that we have been taught. And so we have psychological theories that speak to these now. And a lot of the social stress theory refers mainly to people who belong to so-called minority groups who are stigmatized for various reasons, such as our economic condition, our race, our gender, our background, or aspects of our sexuality. We know that marginalized individuals experience both macro and microaggressions that can compromise our physical and emotional well-being. And often we experience these on a daily basis. An African-American family therapist, A.J. Franklin, refers to these as daily microaggressions, the way in which people may inadvertently mispronounce our name or assume that those of us who are of color, who work at universities, are actually the custodians and not the professors or the deans or even a chancellor. A lot of the research has been conducted with sexual minorities, and I think it's important to bear in mind during the midst of these multiple pandemics that we are experiencing, that all groups are vulnerable to minority stress, but some of us are more vulnerable than others. And I am particularly concerned about our children and our youth, as well as people in my cohort, the elders, because the levels of isolation and this disruption of everyday life may be more challenging for children and youth who haven't had enough of a life experience to learn how to navigate and negotiate challenging times, and for elders who have become increasingly isolated. And I'll say more about this later, but we know that minority stress is chronically high among members of stigmatized groups, that Many of us don't feel safe when we drive. Many of us experience a trauma response when we see an individual in uniform. Many of us are hesitant to speak on the phone because our accent may lead to microaggressions. And I'm teaching on Zoom these days and it goes up in the cloud and then I get a recording and I get a transcript. And it's quite amusing because I choose to laugh rather than cry how the transcript is often so inaccurate because I am assuming that my accent is not quite understood by the artificial intelligence that translates the spoken word into text. But minority stress can be caused not only by structural racism and all the other isms that exist, but also because our networks of social support may be equally impacted and do not offer us the guidance and the mentorship and the support that they might otherwise. That low socioeconomic status 
and interpersonal prejudice and discrimination also contributes to minority stress. And we know that these impacts on particular populations have been studied extensively with members of LGBT communities and individuals who are indigenous, black, or other people of color. So I pose the question, and I invite you to consider, in your experience with students, with professors, with staff, with community members, family members, and other people in your life, in what ways can minority stress be a risk factor? And what might be some factors that mitigate the stress, what we might call mediational variables? But I also pose the question, in what ways can minority stress be a protective factor? Is hypervigilance and looking over your shoulder always bad, always a negative? I think these are conversations that may be helpful for us to have at some point. There's an important comment in the chat um, that I, they would last ask me to address how misinformation and conspiracy theories affect our communities. And clearly, uh, I think a lot of us are being affected by, indeed, the misinformation and uh, QAnon uh, in particular. I have a, an extended family member who was propagating some of the same myths on Facebook. And fortunately, there's two psychologists in the extended family in the United States who um, one of them responded immediately and saved me the response that I wanted to say, but I, because I was spending about five minutes recalibrating in order to respond in a compassionate and loving manner to this cousin um, whose only relationship with me is on Facebook. So I'll try to get back to that more intentionally. And if I don't, Antonio, please remind me. I think it's important to also bear in mind, as I said earlier, that some groups may be more uh, susceptible at various points to minority stress. And these include, of course, women and the working class. Because for many of us in the working class, life and work are often synonymous. And I see this particularly in a lot of the men with whom I work who I evaluate for immigration, who I meet in my community work, who are my evaluation, mental health evaluation and or psychotherapy clients, that the experience of losing employment because of the pandemic challenges, threatens their identity as a man, challenges and threatens their identity as a provider. And a lot of the Latino men with whom I work are experiencing very high levels of anxiety and depression because they're not able to fulfill the cultural mandate, the class mandate of being the provider. But also what does it mean for women who are single parents? How are they struggling with reduced work hours? I had an opportunity to interview a, a lady earlier for a U visa evaluation who is a supervisor in one of the hotels in Northern California, and she only works now two days a week. Her husband is totally unemployed. And so she's sharing with me, I don't know how to differentiate, she says, between the trauma of the violence that I experienced and the trauma of not having a job. I don't know how to put food on the table for my family, but I have to be strong because my husband is very depressed. So when we think about 
the impact of, of COVID on our communities. It isn't just the health disparities, which I will address shortly, and the lack of access to services, and that none of us can get the treatments that the individual in the White House has been able to get when affected by COVID. But we're also dealing with unemployment, and we're also dealing with hopelessness, and we're also dealing with trying to be strong. So we have these minority stressors that can absolutely compromise our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. It's also important to remember that we have a lot of protective factors that can be mobilized in times of crises. That as a people, we are resilient. In many cultures, including my own, we are stoic. We are basically trained to say, okay, yes, accept it, it happens. That's life. Suck it up and keep on going. You cannot stop and wallow in your misery. For many of us, our religious faith is a protective factor. The networks of support, as I mentioned earlier, and a positive ethnic, racial, and sexual identity, which is critical, especially for queer youth of color, who are very vulnerable right now. Many young people have in their schools clubs that support their questioning or bisexual or queer or homosexual or non-binary identities, and they may not have access to those groups right now, and they may be at home with families that are still struggling with their youth's sexuality or youth who may not be out to their families. And so their risk factors for them are very, very high. And also for our undergraduates, for those of us who work in academic institutions, where are they getting support? What protective factors need to be mobilized? And I mentioned in, in stress theory that we have stressors that affect the individual and we have protective factors, which may be viewed as mediational. That is the factors that intervene between a stressor and the outcome, which may be illness, physical, emotional, spiritual, acting out behaviors, despair, violence, etc. But what can mitigate the stressor and the impact. And we know that stressors can be exacerbated by internalized isms and by the impact of controlling images. And what are controlling images? These are created during colonization and slavery to dehumanize and justify that lead to multiple forms of oppression that are now institutionalized. So stereotypes are pernicious, but controlling images give out the message of who's at fault. So when we listen to the current discourse about who is at fault for the pandemic, I don't have to tell you, and I will not repeat what is being said in Washington. But to what extent do we internalize that, that we begin to feel guilty, that we begin to feel somewhat responsible? As educators, as health workers, as community workers, I see part of our task to address those controlling images and contest them. And this is where artists are really important here, and musicians. You know, I, 
I follow a number of artists and a lot of musicians, and they keep me sane. And I'll say more about this later. Because, for instance, in Instagram and Facebook today, I put up an image um, that one of our former students, who is now a professor at Davis, Gilda Posada, has of a native woman, indigenous woman. And this, the image says, it's okay to be a chingona. And yes, we have to claim our power and we need to work with young people to reconnect with their power and to identify those images that speak to them, that represent them, to counter those controlling images, such as the angry black woman, the loud Latina, the black males as criminals, Latino men as burros, as bad hombres, immigrants as criminals, creator of anchor babies, and other controlling images that are being currently used and that feed or are fed by these conspiracy theories, by accusing certain people uh, previously in government who actually advocated for the well-being of people of color to be involved with trafficking. Uh, believe me, they're not. I study trafficking. So more specifically, what is the impact of the current COVID-19 pandemic? How, is, how are we being affected? How is your mental health being affected? Do you see any new controlling images emerging? Who is being blamed by the pandemic? What kinds of narratives are you hearing that you have to um, counter on a daily basis? And again, um, I think it's important to bear in mind that this pandemic is occurring within other pandemics and the racial reckoning that the United States is being forced to face to because of the endless murder of brown and black bodies and native bodies and the disappearance of native women and the disappearance of Latinas and the daily shootings. This week alone in Northern California, two brown men have been murdered by the police. So we are cont continually being bombarded with evidence of injustice. How can we improve our immune system to counter this virus that has disproportionately attacked our communities? We know that COVID-19 has had a pervasive and detrimental effect on mental health. There's there are documented increases of depression, anxiety, substance misuse, family and intimate partner violence, child maltreatment, social violence, increased homicides in some communities. For individuals who have struggled with substance abuse or misuse, there is a high risk of relapse. For those of us who have histories of trauma, we may be experiencing trauma symptoms, hyperalertness, insomnia, difficulty regulating our emotions, which can manifest with overeating, excessive online shopping, excessive drinking, excessive screen time. And how can we discourage our children from, use, from using screen time when they have to do school in Zoom? How do we support one another and counter those narratives that are propagating in the media that are increasing our distrust. And again, these are very complicated questions and I probably don't have adequate answers, but I think it is critical that we 
creative human beings that we are work together to come up with solutions. We need to be aware and mindful and those of us who are older to pay a lot of attention to the well-being of other people in our families. I live in an extended family household. I am continually monitoring the mental health of my grandchildren, much to their uh, amusement and or dismay, depending on the day. It's important to recognize that a lot of what we're feeling is normal. These are not normal times. And I tell my students, I don't expect you to perform to your highest level. I invite you to do your best. But if I cannot function at my best and at my highest level, and I've been around a long time, I cannot expect that of others. So how can we cope with all of this? Many of us are experiencing insomnia. And because I'm a researcher, I'm always monitoring certain things. And so I noticed that if I spend more than four hours at night watching MSNBC, I will have insomnia and I cannot tolerate any other news venue. So that tells you something about my, what my leanings are. But I ask you to think about how you're coping, how you're coping with sadness, with anxiety, with isolation, with loss of control. As I mentioned, I'm part of a very large network and it's been so difficult not to hang out with my comadres, not to spend a lot of social time together. So we're finding ways to do it virtually, to do it safely with enough physical distance, to enjoy the wonderful meals that some of them prepare. Uh, I haven't seen my adult children since January and my son, one of my sons since November. And for those of you who know me, I spent 10 months out of the year traveling and I've been home since December 3rd of last year. So these are the problems of somebody who is privileged. But how are we coping with whatever our circumstances might be? And so invite us, I invite us to think about what lessons we may have learned from our families that can help us continue to persevere during this time. If we cannot find the answers in ourselves or in our circle, we can dig deep into our ancestral histories. And so as we think about coping, and as I talk a little bit about what I suggest might be helpful strategies. I would like you to reflect on who in your social circle seems to need the most support in order to cope, because that may be the individuals that you prioritize in terms of reaching out. So I tell my clients and I tell my students and I tell my family members, and most of all, I tell myself that in times of crises, we can draw from the legacies, the stories, of our elders and ancestors that can help us tr transform our fears into opportunities. So I ask you, where do you draw your strength to continue to doing what you do, what you do for work, to support your family? If you have children, helping them through distance learning, how do you support your students? How do you support your colleagues? How do you keep the mission of your work and of your life going? 
when you may literally have trouble breathing, as I do, because of the fires and because I'm very somatic. So anything, anytime anything bad happens, I literally have trouble breathing. So I would like us to reflect on what we have available as I speak and as I share with you, because unfortunately in this medium and, and with a very large audience, we often cannot engage in, in storytelling and story sharing. So I have the privilege of being the storyteller today. So um, before I go to self-care, uh, I want to share a little story with you. And in the beginning of the pandemic, I, I was okay. I, I was home. I was adjusted. I figured, okay, six months, I can do this. Uh, July 1st came around, and I began to have a pity party with myself. And I took a couple of deep breaths, and I talked to myself, and I said, you know what, Yvette, get over yourself. Um, you have a roof over your head. You have a job that pays you, even you, though you're home. You don't have to leave your house. Um, one of my daughters is a nurse, and so she refuses to let me out of the house. She's afraid I'll get COVID and die because I'm old and I have asthma and other underlying conditions. So I have people who love me. I have people who take care of me. I have people who keep me company. I have friends. And yet I, there are days when I was in the pit of despair, and so I decided to dig into the ancestral well. And I remember the story. And um, Britt, I don't know if you know the story, but this is the story of my children's paternal grandmother, uh, Maria Hernandez. And Maria Hernandez lost her husband, her baby daughter, and several other family members to the flu pandemic of the last century. And after her husband and her baby daughter died, she took her then 11-year-old son by the hand and walked from Camargo, Tamaulipas to the Texas border. We don't know how, but she crossed the Rio Grande, and we don't know how she ended up in Galveston, Texas, where she, with a sixth grade education, supported her son, eventually married, her second husband, and had three other children. And because of her, my children had a father. And because of her, the Ortiz Hernandez family line continued. And yes, the family has been affected by a lot of the historical trauma, and we have lost way too many family members. However, I think about her, a widow with a young son, walking to the Texas border, crossing a river to raise a family and to provide that son with greater opportunities. And I think about all of the stories of my parents migrating to the United States in their 40s for a number of reasons, one among them to give me a better life. And so that helps ground me and that helps me root myself into the privileges that I have. And to remember, as Manuel Ramirez III might say, what is my destiny? 
And what is my legacy? And what is my obligation to the ancestors to keep on going? And so what I share with you is that self-care is absolutely essential for us to continue to do what we do. That compassion of ourselves and compassion towards our families, particularly those family members that embody many of the things that we despair about, like homophobia and racism and sexism, that in order to be able to be compassionate of our families and sometimes of our colleagues and our students, we need to be mindful of our own self-care. As educators, as members of academic institutions, especially for those of us who come from marginalized communities, taking time for ourselves may be difficult because many of us have been, prior, have been socialized to prioritize others. And this is gendered also, and it's also a function of social class. But it's also important to remember that we need to nurture ourselves in order to refill our own well. And that one way of taking care of ourselves is that sometimes we need to check out and disconnect. We need to disconnect from media. We need to disconnect from our families. We need to disconnect from our colleagues and from our students. We need time for us. Because if we do not disconnect from others, we may find it very hard to connect with ourselves. And my dear colleague, Natalia Dipsosa, who's here, gives us a quote from Audre Lorde, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare, indeed. And uh, someone also posed a question in the chat that how do we navigate when we have family members who have different political views. Um, this is not advice because I really cannot advise you and have handled that. But I will share with you what I have done. Um, I have divorced a number of people in my family and I do not have anything to do with many people in my family because of who they chose to support politically. I understand that there is a lot of internalized racism and a lot of fake, false, hyper-masculinity in some of my family members who identify with the aggressor and with the master aggressor because they see this individual as representing strength. And they did not, do not distinguish between strength and oppression but I do not need toxicity and negativity in my life. There is enough toxicity in the air. I do not need to inhale the toxicity of family members. And it's a difficult decision. I socialize virtually now with their children and with those others in the family who are more balanced, but I will not have contact with those who hold political views that I considered abhorrent. If we protect ourselves in that way, it may make it easier to connect with others from a place of strength. 
And I think this is particularly important for all of us and those of us who have histories of trauma because the current circumstances are traumatic. COVID-19 is traumatic. And for those of us who already have histories of trauma, and many of us carry intergenerational trauma, I carry the intergenerational trauma of the Afro-Latina, indigenous, mestiza, and European women in my genealogy, and also of the violence perpetrated upon some of the men in my family who then made them perpetrators. So when we have histories of trauma, we may go into trauma mode and we can go into a fight, flight, or freeze response. And we need to recognize the ways in which we deal with our trauma and that being in a state of hyper alertness because of trauma, having insomnia because of trauma affects our immune system and may make us more vulnerable to the negative effects of the virus if we're unlucky enough um, to become infected. So that the lesson is that we must prioritize our emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being in order to be able to mobilize our resilience. So I ask you, what is your practice? And that all of our cultural traditions, for those of us here represented in this afternoon, all have ways of balancing and healing. We're told that being grateful and offering gratitude Prayer, smudging, ancestor worship, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, these are all very helpful ways to regain balance when we're feeling out of balance, to mobilize our resilience. But we can also promote balance through exercise and baking and cooking and reaching out to others and isolating. But creativity, creativity is essential. Even for those of us who are not artists, draw, paint, doodle. And for those of you who are artists, share your work with us, inspire us. Tell us how this is helping you cope. For the musicians who are creating Zoom concerts, who are sticking their necks and their bodies out, taking strong positions in support of Black Lives Matter and getting attacked by others. For those of us who choose to remember who we are as mixed race people and who are proud of our ethnic and racial identity complexities, journal, write, sing, dance, do dream work, whatever works for you, now is the time to do more of and to share that practice, to share that practice with your loved ones with the young ones, share the practice with your friends, share it virtually, whatever your talents, whatever your gifts. And I wanted to have some time for us to, to have uh, a conversation. And, but I really would like to ask you to do this and perhaps we can compile these and share them later. That if you would like to write a word or short phrase in the text that describes your wishes for yourself, for this group, for those who are here together, for your people, for your loved ones, for our planet, for our brothers and sisters in the animal world. And I ask that we give thanks to our ancestors for protecting us, for guiding us, and for continuing us to teach us how to survive and how to thrive for the Maria Hernandezes and Aura Perigos and uh, Mercedes Medinas that we all have my mother and my grandmothers, 
and my cousins who have passed on who continue to inspire me. And I would like to leave you with this image uh, from Jews for Peace that says, open our hearts, clear our lungs, protect our connections. And I think now more than ever, we need to open our hearts and clear our lungs and protect our connections. And if you practice traditional medicine, if you practice Chinese medicine, if you practice Western medicine, whatever medicine, Ayurvedic, whatever medicine you practice, talk about it, celebrate it, and share the knowledge with others. Because this is how we're going to get through this together. <laughs>